You don't have to look far to find abuses of authority. Whether it's mercenaries marching on Moscow or a haughty head of a local HOA asserting his or her authority. Uh, We find abuses of authority all around us. And I know you're familiar with Lord Acton's famous 19th century uh, proverb, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. One com- I mean, that's true. But one common, I think, mistaken uh, you know, conclusion from that reality is that the problem is with authority itself. And so sometimes, especially in our culture, people have said, you know what, let's just chuck the whole thing. We don't need any, anybody, does, no one needs authority. Let's just get rid of it all. Or basically, I should be the only authority and there should be no other external authority over me. But of course, that's not accurate or helpful. The problem isn't with authority itself. The problem is with those who have authority. And the problem is that those who have authority are tainted by sin. So wherever anybody has authority, there's a potential for abuse of that authority. And wherever authority is abused, we'll find suffering that goes along with it. Of course, that's not the only source of suffering. But today, as we look at the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 8... We find good news for all those who live in a context where authority can be or is being abused. And we find good news for all those who are suffering in general under any of the effects of sin. We're going to learn this morning that there is one who does have absolute authority and he is absolutely good. There is one who has absolute authority and he is absolutely good. So as we come to Matthew chapter 8, I just want to ask this morning... Are you suffering? We could put in that category of suffering really any kind of suffering. I know there are many who are struggling physically this morning. This passage is for you. I know there are many who are struggling emotionally this morning. You've endured hurt and you are suffering. This passage is for you. I know there are many who are spiritually struggling this morning trying to make their way through, trying to to trust the Lord in difficult circumstances. This passage is for you. And in it, Matthew records for us a beautiful picture, actually three beautiful pictures woven together of Jesus alleviating our suffering. We we could think about those words in Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people, because that's what we find this morning in Matthew chapter 8. So you have your Bible there. Let's look at verse 1. We're coming right off of the Sermon on the Mount, or right down from the mountain, we might say. And now we're getting back into some of the action. And Matthew has selected a few things that happened in Jesus's early Galilean ministry that just highlight his his ministry as the Messiah. And so this morning in verses 1 to 17, we have a group of three healings that go together. So we're going to look at them each in turn and then consider the, the main idea here. Uh, We pick it up in verse 1, and it's basically coming right off of the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, we read, When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest 
and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. If you pause there at verse 4, let's just track back and figure out what's going on in this first scene, okay? So Jesus comes down from the hillside of the mountain, and as he comes down, a large crowd has gathered. Now that's consistent with Matthew chapter 5, right before the Sermon on the Mount, crowds were following him, and then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we actually get a reference again to the crowds, so this makes sense. His uh, healing ministry had already started, his teaching, the word about his teaching has gotten around, he teaches as one with authority, and so people have come to hear from the one who teaches with authority, and specifically come seeking healing. And so right away, Matthew says in verse 2, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him. Now, just before we get too far, you know, into this, when it, when it says here, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, right away there would be all kinds of warning uh, sirens going off in a first century Jewish reader. Because the fact is, if you know your Old Testament, if you know Leviticus, especially Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, there's a whole chunk of description in the law about how to handle people with skin conditions, especially leprosy or any ancient version of it, and and how they should be treated. And in order to protect the community in a pre-modern context, people with leprosy were required to live outside of the camp in the ancient Israelite wilderness context. And then, of course, once they settled in the land outside of the town or the, or the, the village that they were uh, living in. And so they had to live outside of the town. They had to wear basically clothing that was intentionally attention-getting. Intentionally attention-getting. Yes. So that was meant to draw attention to them. They were supposed to let their hair grow a little, kind of, you know, the facial hair or whatever. If it was a guy, let, you know, let it grow out a little bit so they would be noticeable. And they had, to, they had to basically say whenever anybody came near, they had to cover their mouth and yell, unclean, unclean. Now this is in Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. So here there's this instruction. You can imagine being a person suffering with a skin condition like this. Maybe the first time you caught a white spot on your arm or something, you thought, oh no, oh no. What happens now? And you're, you're forced to separate from your family. You're forced to live outside of the community. You're now you're dependent on others' charity to provide for your needs. You can't engage relationally with those that you love. You can't do your work the way you used to do it. And then whenever somebody comes by, maybe even somebody that, that would risk getting close enough to offer you some kind of condolence or some kind of comfort, you had to yell, unclean, unclean, stay away. Stay away. So we just need to reread that verse. Right away, a man with leprosy came up. This man risks coming close to Jesus. He came up, it says, and knelt before him. That verb to kneel here, that verb has with it, it carries with it the idea not just of, uh, okay, honoring someone of higher authority, but in this context, it carries with it a sense of worship. Now, no doubt this man with leprosy doesn't maybe understand all of the implications that Jesus is the very son of God, the second person of the Trinity, right? The creator of this universe who is now taken on flesh. He didn't understand all of that, but he knew enough to know that I should worship this one. And so he comes and he kneels before Jesus in a, in a tone of humble worship. And he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't doubt Jesus's ability, his 
power or authority, you know, his authority over sickness or illness. He, He assumes that based on what he has already apparently seen and heard. But he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Are you? (laughs) Are you willing? And we we don't want to underestimate then the drama of verse 3. Look in your Bible there at Matthew chapter 8, verse 3. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing. Be made clean. Now let me just explain to you the way it worked, okay? The Old Testament law... If you came into contact with anyone who was unclean, you then became unclean, okay? So it was, it was an infection scenario here, and it wasn't necessarily a literal infection. The idea, of course, was that now you are unclean before God. That's, that's the idea. And so this, this category of uncleanness is not limited to physical illness, but it's actually a category of standing before the Lord. And so the, the prescription for being unclean was not just dealing with the sickness, but it was actually dealing with the problem of sin, And so again, if you go to Leviticus 13 and 14, you get all these not only requirements for those who are unclean, but then what do you do with people that are unclean? And how are they made clean? The one thing you would never do with someone who is unclean is touch them. You would never do it. And here, we don't know how long this man had been a leper, but here he comes to the Lord and he asks, are you willing to make me clean? And there's actually something emphatic going on in verse 3. That phrase there at the beginning, reaching out his hand, it slows down the action just a little bit. And you just see the hand of Jesus go out, right? And remarkably, scandalously, shockingly, Jesus touches him. But when Jesus touches a leper, he doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. Watch verse 3 again. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him saying, I am willing. Don't doubt his goodness. I am willing. Be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. You might remember Miriam in uh, Numbers chapter 12. uh, She had a form of skin disease or leprosy that fits into this category. And there was a a lengthy time where it took her to to become clean and to be cleansed of it. You might remember uh, Naaman, right? In 2 Kings, the the, uh, Syrian, uh, you know, general who has leprosy and then he has to go and dip in the Jordan so many times in order to be made clean. There's a process here. It takes time. This time, no such, there's no time, you know, limit here. There's no extended period of healing. Jesus touches the man. He says, I'm willing. And immediately he's made clean. It's that fast. Not only is Jesus not infected with this man's spiritual and physical condition, Jesus imparts spiritual and physical healing to him. He says, I'm willing, be made clean. It's done. Immediately his his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus does something that's really weird. Verse 4, then Jesus told him, see to it that you don't tell anyone. He had already posted it on Facebook. (laughs) I mean, that's how fast, that's how excited this guy was. Like, it was like, he was that excited. It was like that life-changing. What? Well, here's the deal. Jesus does not want to attract the attention of the authorities any more than he already will by his ministry. And so at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, you see him intentionally kind of try to keep a lid on certain kinds of his messianic activities because he's not ready to go to the cross yet. And so that's what's going on here. He's just wanting to maybe delay that till the right time as much as possible. But he does want the man to respond in a particular way. So Jesus told him, see to it that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. 
and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. There's two things going on here. One, of course, is Jesus is encouraging this man to continue to pursue the Lord, which in that context meant go and offer the sacrifice that you're supposed to offer. Again, back in Leviticus, here we are. And so when he goes to offer the sacrifice and the priest says, well, how did you get healed? How are you now clean? Now he has an opportunity to testify to the priest and to say, well, Jesus made me clean. And so still the, the, the advancement of Jesus' messianic mission continues one step at a time. What's going on here? Well, what's going on is Jesus uses his authority to ease suffering. Jesus uses his authority to ease suffering, to ease our suffering. Jesus' authority that was described at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were blown away by his authority. They were blown away by his teaching with authority, but his authority is not limited only to teaching. Here, Matthew picks out a few healing examples to show that Jesus was, in fact, healing the sick. And so his authority is not limited to teaching because he is the second person of the Trinity, because he is worthy to be knelt before, right? He is worthy to be worshiped in that sense. The question is not, it's never one of Jesus's power or authority. The question is, well, is he willing? That's exactly what this leper wonders. Is he willing to heal me? I've heard that he can. I've maybe, you know, seen people that he's healed, but, but is he willing to heal me? You know, there's, there's inevitably a moment in our lives when you've been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ where you have to ask that exact question. It's not about necessarily the, the corporate scenario. It's not about your family history or the tribe that you come from. The question is, is he willing to heal me? Because, dear ones, we're unclean. I mean, these passages in the law that describe at length all the reasons and, and, and ways that we are unclean, that people would be unclean in ancient Israel before God, they teach us something about how sinners relate to God. And the fact is that every one of us is unclean. We may not have that same skin condition, but we have the problem of sin. And so as each one of us is unclean, we have to ask the question, is he willing to heal me? And don't miss the drama here. As Jesus extends his hand, he is communicating very clearly, not only that he is willing to touch the unclean one, but he is communicating that when he touches him, he is not going to receive uncleanness, right? And now be, be categorized as unclean, but rather he imparts spiritual cleansing. And that's exactly what happens when we put our faith in Jesus. When you come to faith in Jesus, what happens to you is you are made clean. But make no mistake that it's not a function of us earning it or us performing, right? Or, or where we come from, but rather it's a function of the willingness of Jesus to heal. Is he willing to heal me? And the answer is yes, he is. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans. You know what that means? That means all the stuff that you don't want anybody else to know, Jesus knows, and he still was willing to touch you. All the stuff about you that is ugly, that is unfortunate, all the stuff about you that is 
that is without excuse sinful, Jesus knows. And he looks right at you here through the word of God and he says, I am willing. He's willing to make us clean. Now, specifically here, we see this unpacked in in the detail of his reversing our uncleanness, right? Here, Jesus reverses our uncleanness, resulting in healing, but not just healing, acceptance and belonging. Because the big deal for this guy is that he no longer had to live outside of the community. He He could now go home. He could now go back to his family. He could go back to his relationships. He didn't have to sit around anymore dressed like a crazy man yelling out, unclean, unclean, right? Now he could, he could come back into the, the, the welcome arms of his friends and family. I think we learn from this that sin does more than just damage us physically, of course. It damages our relationships and it damages society itself. But in Christ, we are made clean, and that means that we are accepted. It's Jesus's healing that makes us accepted. It's his healing, right? It's his provision for us that allows us to be welcomed into the family of God, to have a place of belonging. Why don't others accept us the way Jesus does? Well, I'll tell you why. (laughs) I got a few reasons, right? People, we, we do this all the time. We box people out, right? And we treat people... As outsiders. And sometimes others don't accept us because of our failures. We have to own that, right? Sometimes we hurt other people. And a function of that in a broken world is sometimes, yeah, people then flinch. Like, you hurt, you've hurt me, so I'm going to flinch the next time. Like, that's how it works. And so maybe relationally you've hurt someone, and so there's been some broken relationships there. And so you've been, you've been put out of a particular circle of friends, or, or there's damage done to your family. Others don't accept us sometimes because genuinely we failed them. Of course, sometimes others don't accept us because of their failures, because of their sin. Maybe they're arrogant. Maybe they're trying to get revenge on someone. Maybe they're just prejudiced. And so for whatever reason, they've boxed us out of their social network or whatever. But here's the reality here. What Jesus shows us in this scene and what Matthew wants you to get is that not only is Jesus willing to make you clean, but as he makes you clean, he restores you. He restores you to the family. Maybe not your literal family, right? Doesn't automatically fix all of those problems that you faced. Doesn't automatically undo all those past wrongs. But with Jesus, we find the acceptance we most need in this universe. And so you see this beautiful picture of this one who was outside, who was unclean, who now has been made clean. And Jesus reverses our uncleanness, resulting in healing, acceptance, and belonging. That's not the only way he shows us his goodness here in chapter 8. Watch verse 5. He goes on to Capernaum. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him. By the way, notice a common thread of people in need coming to Jesus, right? This time it's a Roman centurion who is certainly not Jewish, who was there probably with a contingent of soldiers meant to serve with uh, Herod Antipas, Don't worry about those details. All that to say is that he is a high-ranking official, maybe the highest-ranking official in the area. And so he comes to Jesus, pleading with him, verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. He said to him, am I to come and heal him? Now, just pause at verse 7, okay? In the CSB, that's a question. English translations are kind of 50-50 on this. Some translations don't have it as a question. Some translations have it as a question. Let me just explain what's going on there. 
if it's a question, Jesus says, am I to come and heal him? He's, Jesus is front-loading the recognition that the centurion is a Gentile, and for a Jew to go to a Gentile's home would have been viewed as another way to be unclean. It would have been unheard of, okay? It would not be something that a rabbi would do. And so Jesus is just acknowledging, wow, that's a big ask. You're asking me to come to your house and heal this guy? So it's basically front-loading the, the, the ethnic uh, division there between Jew and non-Jew, okay? So if it's a question, that's how I think we need to read it. Um, I'm probably more inclined to take it as a statement. I think maybe some of the translations say, I am uh, willing to come and heal him. And I think that that's probably more what's going on. Jesus says, okay, let's go. Let's get this done. All right, I'm willing to come and heal him, which front loads uh, Jesus's goodness and his desire to actually alleviate the suffering of this Gentile soldier's, you know, uh, servant. So he says, yeah, I'm willing. Let's do this, right? Notice how the, the centurion responds, though, verse 8. Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. It's almost like the centurion knows it would be an embarrassment for Jesus and and taboo for Jesus to go to his house. And he says, I'm not worthy. Again, I'm not worthy. The centurion didn't understand Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity who took on flesh, right? He's the son of God. He doesn't get that. But he, get, he has this sense of the worthiness of Jesus and his unworthiness in contrast. And so he says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. He recognizes his position of need. So he says, you don't have to come into my room. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. How does this guy know that? I mean, he's, and now he's heard stories by this time, you know, early stories of Jesus healing people. So he's going, this Jesus must be the real deal. And so here... He's, he's leveraging his need, right, into the goodness of Jesus and the power and authority of Jesus. Now watch where the story goes. Matthew's clear. Verse 9, he goes on, the, the centurion explains. He says, for I too am a man under, what does your Bible say there? Authority, yeah. I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. This guy gets authority, the military lifestyle. He gets authority, right? So he says, Jesus, I get it. You're the boss of all of it. So you don't have to come to the house. Just say the word and it'll be done. Verse 10, hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Jesus turns around and he says, everybody listen up. This is what it's all about. What? Faith. This guy gets it. This Roman centurion gets it. And here I am. I've been ministering now to Israel for at least a while, and I haven't found anyone with the level of faith as this guy. He knows I don't even have to go to the house to get this done. He calls it so great a faith here. Watch verse 11. There's a warning. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you just pause there, Jesus here actually alludes to Isaiah 25, verse 6, where Isaiah prophesies about the big banquet uh, at the Messiah's table and how there will be all the nations will be gathered to this banquet. It's Isaiah 25, verse 6. 
And here Jesus says there's going to be people from east and west coming to that banquet, from outside of Israel to eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then he cautions the sons of the kingdom, those who assumed they were getting in because they were ethnically descended from Abraham, those who assumed they were getting in because they had performed the law really well and they were Pharisees or Sadducees and, and scribes and they had this level of spiritual achievement supposedly He says, those sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus warns and cautions. He says, this guy gets it. The Roman centurion gets it. And let me just tell you something. There are going to be a lot more non-Jewish believers at that that party, at that feast table. And he just warns. He says, you need to be careful. Those of you who think you're getting in because of your your family history, those of you who think you're getting in because of your merit, that you've earned it, you need to be really careful because so many that think that are not getting in. And they'll be outside in the darkness suffering. That's what, of course, the weeping and gnashing of teeth conveys. Of course, then watch verse 13, the conclusion to scene two here. Then Jesus told the centurion, go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. (laughs) Jesus, it's so amazing because he says, yeah, your faith was right. And the, the servant is not healed because of the faith of the centurion. The servant is healed because of the power of Jesus. That's why he's healed. But this centurion has believed. And so Jesus says, go, your faith is legit. It's in the right place. It's in the correct object. And so, yeah, you're right. I don't have to go over there. It's done. He's better. Like, go, you're good. Here, affirming the man's faith and using him as a model to all of the non-Gentiles that were following him, right? All these Jews are following Jesus. He says, learn from this guy. Well, we see that, yes, Jesus not only reverses our uncleanness, but here he does something remarkable. He basically settles the issue of prejudice by affirming this guy's faith. Jesus destroys prejudice here, enabling people from every tribe to sit at his table. It's no doubt there were people following him going, this guy's, a, this guy's a, a pagan, he's a Roman. Like just him being around Jesus is kind of offensive, right? And Jesus confronts this, this natural prejudice where we favor people who share our skin tone or we favor people who are from our, our tribe, right? Or from our, or from our ethnicity. And so we, tra- we favor them more than others. Jesus says that is not going to work. Because the bottom line issue for getting into the kingdom of heaven, the bottom line issue for having a seat at that table, that feast table from Isaiah 25, it's not what family you come from. It's not what color your skin is. It's where you've put your faith. That's the issue. And so here Jesus, he levels the playing field fundamentally. Not only, and this is not, it's just so great. It's not a new idea. I think that's why Jesus winks to Isaiah 55 here. Excuse me, Isaiah 25. He says, listen, this is not a new thing. This is consistent with God's revelation to you about what he's going to be doing through the Messiah. But just so we're clear, this Roman centurion gets it. He's put his faith in me. In fact, Jesus says, I haven't found faith this great yet. So learn from this guy. What did that guy do that was so special? He knew that Jesus had the power and authority to save. And so he leveraged, right, that. He said, okay, I'm going to Jesus, and I'm going to rely on him for for total healing of my servant here. Jesus destroys prejudice. Why? Because he enables people from every tribe to sit at his table. There's no room 
for prejudice at his table. And there's certainly no room for it in his church. And so it's not about, it can't be about family history. And I know we praise God for families who have legacies of faith. That is an awesome thing to come from a family where you have multiple generations of believers. Praise God for that. But don't you for a moment think that because your grandparents are strong Christians that you're getting in. Don't think for a moment because your family was a part of the founding of this church or that church that you're getting in. The only way you're going to have a seat at that table is by faith in Jesus Christ. Personal faith in Jesus Christ, where you recognize that you are in desperate need and the only thing you can do is go to the one who has authority. The centurion says, I get authority. You just have to say the word. Jesus says, that's faith. I wonder, do you have faith? Meaning, have you relied on Jesus for it all? For the alleviation of your suffering, absolutely. For forgiveness of your sins, definitely. But even for the provision of purpose for your life. Saying, I'm going to look to Jesus to guide me in every decision that I make. There are so many obstacles to faith that that we face. The primary obstacle would be self-reliance. I don't need help, right? I don't need help. Maybe this guy had tried other remedies, you know, his... He had, he had tried all the, the local remedies, the so-called medical experts of the day, and, and there was no healing to be found. And so he said, I got nowhere else to go. But finally, he figured it out, and he went to the one place where he actually could find help. Self-reliance is an obstacle to faith. Sometimes there's reliance on others can be a, an obstacle to faith, where we don't go to Jesus because we're going to someone else instead, Right? And we need good friends. We need good, we need good brothers and sisters to come alongside us and help us in our walk. But be careful that you're not using them as a substitute for the Lord. Okay? I mean, I, you know, I know everybody jokes about I have this bat phone in my office, this red phone in my office that goes to the, straight to heaven. And I don't. It's not red. It's green. But anyway, that's... <laughs> but a pastor, an elder, a church, we, we can't do the work for you meaning that that we're not a substitute for Jesus for you. You go to the Lord. And one of the things that Jesus' ministry facilitates is that we have access to the throne of grace. And we find help in our time of need. So reliance on others might be a hindrance to your faith. Of course, we live in the modern age or the postmodern age where basically anything that's claimed to be supernatural feels more like it belongs in the Marvel or DC universe rather than in the realm of reality. And so we might struggle to believe that Jesus could just say the word and heal someone of their sickness. But brothers and sisters, if he created the universe by saying a word, he can heal sickness by saying a word. And so don't let an anti-supernatural bias prevent you from trusting in the one, the only one who has absolute authority and who is absolutely good. There's a warning here to those relying on merit or family history to be careful. Jesus says, this guy is an example. He's an example because he's not an Israelite. He's an example because he has incredible faith. He knows who to ask for help. He says, you can learn from him. And once again, we find someone humbly coming to Jesus in an attitude that that feels like worship, right? Coming to Jesus, knowing he's not worthy, and yet asking Jesus for, for help. Why? Because Jesus uses his authority for our good, which leads us to the third scene, third incident. 
The least dramatic, maybe the most dramatic. I don't know. It depends on who you are. Watch verse 14. Jesus went into Peter's house. This is in Capernaum. And saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Now listen, I have a mother-in-law, so I can't make any mother-in-law jokes, okay? So you can just insert your mother-in-law drama joke there for your own reference, all right? So there it is. All that to say, Peter's mother-in-law is not doing well. She's got a fever. So verse 15, we read, So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. You know, with such a twisted age we live in, some people read that verse, she got up and began to serve him, and they take that as a negative. You know, but here's this, I don't know how your mother-in-law is, but when my mother-in-law is showing hospitality, the last thing she wants is to not honor a guest, right? And so here's Jesus in her own home, and she's down sick. And as he touches her, he heals her immediately, alleviates her suffering. She pops up. She's ready to go. Battery's charged 150%. What is she going to do? She's going to take care of her guests. It's her home, for crying out loud. She's going to take care of her guests. And so... There, she, she cares for Jesus and serves. As she does so, she honors him. Of course, that just leads, though, into a whole, a whole group of healings that happened at Capernaum. And this is where Matthew wants to really draw our attention. He says, when evening came, so now Peter's mother-in-law has been healed. So now when evening came, they brought in many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. If you pause there, verse 16 Uh, So here, people are coming to him. They brought people to him or they've come to him who are struggling with demon possession. And that would manifest itself in the first century often with physical ailments. So it might look like they're having seizures. It might look like they have some kind of sickness, but it's actually an affliction by a demon. And so here they come to Jesus looking for help. Jesus cures them. Notice there's no like... um, There's no equipment that's needed to accomplish this. There's no like exorcism process, 17 steps. You have to have garlic oil and the right, you know, whatever and all this. Like there's none of that. Jesus just says, you're done. Out. That's it. It's a word. A word, Jesus says. You're done. Out. Over. And then he's just, he's just healing all these people, alleviating their suffering. And then they're bringing him the sick as well. Those who just had kind of normal sicknesses. And then he's healing them as well. Again, with authority used for the benefit of all those who came to him. Matthew wants you to get the picture. If you're suffering and you come to Jesus, what are you going to find? You're going to find grace. You're going to find healing. You're going to find one who's inclined to alleviate the pain that you're in. But there's more to it. And Matthew says, don't miss it. So he gets it, he gets it right there in verse 17. So he, 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 he's, uh, you know, healed all these people of their sicknesses. He's driven out all the demons. Verse 17, so that, what was the purpose? So that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. Matthew links this scene of healing and really probably all three scenes of healings here, right? All the, verses 1 to 17, he says, all this is going on. And Matthew says, it wasn't just happening for the sake of people getting better from being sick. Jesus is making a point. Matthew says he's doing it so that something written in the Old Testament would be fulfilled. Specifically in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Now your Bibles all have a note there that, that what he's talking about is Isaiah 53, verse 4. Isaiah 53 is a part of the the book of Isaiah where he's talking about the Messiah and his role 
as the one who will provide comfort for Israel. Again, that, the whole context of that part of Isaiah starts in chapter 40 with comfort, comfort my people. There's comfort for you available. But in chapter 53 of Isaiah, we find out specifically that that, that, that comfort comes from the suffering servant who, with Matthew's translation here, who took our weaknesses. So here these people are coming to Jesus with their weaknesses, the leprosy, right? The, the sick servant, right? The sick mother-in-law, the demon possession, whatever illness they had. And Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll ta-. He's taking it from them. He's taking it to carry. He, he himself took our diseases, Matthew says, and excuse me, took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. And he carries them. Where does he carry them? Well, if you know Isaiah 53, you know where he carries them. Because as Isaiah 53 goes on, the prophet Isaiah talks about how this suffering servant will actually suffer in the place of his people. He takes their sicknesses, their illnesses, he takes their sins, their iniquities, and he takes them and he, and he suffers in our place. Matthew says, don't miss it. Jesus isn't just healing for show. He's not just healing to make people feel better. He's healing to say this. The suffering servant is here. And I am going to do everything that is prophesied of me in Isaiah 53. Yes, I am taking your sicknesses and your weaknesses, your diseases. But that's not all. He's going to take those sicknesses, those weaknesses, and he's going to carry them right to the cross. Where as Matthew's gospel climaxes, right, he explains to us, this is what Jesus has done to provide healing for us. We read these stories And if you're like me, right, you're reading here and you're thinking instantly of all the suffering that we're going through. And again, I don't know all the suffering that's going on in everyone's lives, but I know we got a lot of suffering. We live in a broken world, okay? And that's a part of living in a broken world. There's so much, again, physical, emotional, uh, spiritual turmoil that we're facing. And and I desperately wish, right, I desperately wish that, that we had access to Jesus today, right now, in the way that we could just go to him and he could just heal us immediately. And it could be done. And sometimes he's pleased to heal us miraculously and we praise God for that. But should the Lord tarry, we will get sick and we won't recover. Should the Lord tarry, we're going to continue to face people sinning against us and we're going to face hurt, significant hurt. Should the Lord tarry, we will continue to suffer. But what these healings tell us most clearly is that where we are headed is the permanent removal of all suffering. Why? Because Jesus took it to the cross. You see, yes, Jesus delivers us from evil, rendering Satan powerless to stop his kingdom. But specifically, he's using his authority to ease our suffering by his death as the suffering servant. He uses his authority to ease our suffering by his death as the suffering servant. He carries our suffering to the cross. This is a foretaste of what is coming for us in his kingdom. The root issue is sin. And Jesus says, I have come to solve the problem of sin. So he heals so many. He drives out the demons, putting Satan on notice. You're done. Okay. It's over. My victory is coming. Like that's it. But then what happens is as he goes to the cross, he pays the penalty for the root problem, the issue of sin. 
And when he returns, there will be no room for sin anymore. No room for suffering anymore. That's why we have these prophetic promises. That's why when we read in Revelation, we read that he's wiped every tear away from our eye. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. It's all gone. Why? Because he's the suffering servant who went to the cross for us. Matthew's narrative is clear. This solution ultimately comes by virtue of Jesus loving us to the point that he was willing to die for us. And Matthew knows the context of Isaiah 53. And he wants us to not miss the point. That yes, Jesus bears our weaknesses and diseases so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be cured, and so that we can be at peace without suffering forever. If you're here this morning and you have not yet come to Jesus on your knees, maybe you haven't come to him because of your suffering. Maybe you're bitter at God for allowing you to suffer in the ways that you have. Maybe, maybe you just have no capacity to look to him for help because you feel like he's turned his back on you. Please hear, hear the gospel from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. When we look to Jesus, what do we find? We find one willing to heal. We find the one whose touch removes our uncleanness. We find the one who fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53, not only by taking our weaknesses, but by taking them to the cross. And he does it for people from any tribe, any family, any nation. Welcome at his banquet table. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ, the issue isn't Jesus. Because when we look at him through the word of God, we see the one whose love and whose goodness is irrefutable. Yes, he has authority. So he can just say the word and he heals people. Yes, he has authority to drive out demons. Yes, he can heal from from long distances. It's not just that he has that authority, but he is absolutely good in how he uses it. And one day, he will eradicate sin from this universe. And we know, because he didn't just die on that cross, he rose from the dead. And so he conquers sin and death and Satan. The key battle has been won. In the meantime, our calling is to trust him. And if you've never trusted him, again, he's not the issue. So consider today putting your faith in Jesus, not only for the forgiveness of your sins, but for your eternal well-being. Thinking about this passage, my friend uh, Spurgeon said, the reason why Jesus is able to heal all the mischief that sin has wrought is this, because he himself took our sin upon himself by his sacred substitution. Sin is the root of our infirmities and diseases. And so in taking the root, he took all the bitter fruit, which that root did bear. I acknowledge that for now, sometimes the suffering hurts. But dear ones, we have a great savior who will remove that suffering forever. The question is, will we trust him today? Would you please pray with me and we'll ask him to help us trust him. Lord, once again, we pause this morning and we acknowledge our need. We confess with the centurion here that we are not worthy for you to enter our house. And yet, Lord, you are inclined to heal. You are inclined to rescue and to save. You are willing to make us clean. 
We rejoice in this beautiful picture, these three scenes, Lord, where we see your goodness on display. Lord, we thank you that when we think about your saving work, we realize that it does restore us to acceptance and belonging. We thank you that, Lord, it removes prejudice. Lord, we thank you that it it reminds us of your authority over Satan and evil and that we need not fear Satan or evil. But Lord, as we struggle, we may be struggling to trust you. And so we ask for your help to do just that. Lord, make us people of great faith who rest not in confidence in ourselves or in confidence in others, but who have put all of our confidence in you. And Lord, even as for a moment you have ordained that we would still face some degree of suffering, we we pray that you would help us to endure by faith, to never lose hope, and to recognize that that suffering is temporary. We thank you that you are the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that you carry our diseases, our weaknesses, our sins, and you carry them right to the cross. And Lord, we thank you that you did not only suffer in our place, but you were victorious in our place as well conquering sin and death. Lord, as we reflect on this passage, may we just recognize how much you love us and how that's beautifully on display for us this morning here in Matthew chapter 8. Help us to respond with faith. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.